Welcome to the Speaking Podcast, and you can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. They're all different, so be sure to listen to them all to get all the tips and tricks from speakers all over the world. We also have two other podcasts, the Learn Polish Podcast and the Meditation Podcast, and they can be found along with Polish Property on roycolin.com. Episode number 62 of the Speaking Podcast. All our episodes can be found on speakingpodcast.com. Today, I've got a guest, not sure if he even knows, but he's inspired me to actually take up public speaking. Please welcome Eric Edmides. You know, Roy, I didn't know that. I'm, it's, 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 that's an honor. Yeah. So it was actually at an A-Fest. The first A-Fest that I went to was in Cancun, and it was What's Your Quest? And I was impressed with you on stage. It was like, oh, thank you very much. If I remember correctly, I was actually on vacation at that A-Fest. And then they, they, like, I wasn't even one of the book speakers. It was a very spontaneous moment. I'm glad it was an inspiration for you. Brilliant. So how I normally start off, Eric, is I just say to the audience, who's Eric? You know, um, I'm a South African-born, Canadian-raised, global citizen that's lived all over the world, including, in, as I mentioned, in Cork, Ireland, and a bunch of other places. And, um, but now I really, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really focused on um, two of my companies that I'm really excited about. One is called WildFit, where we are helping people change their relationship with food and, and turn around their physical experience of life. And also Speaker Nation, where we help people find their voice and become com- comfortable and confident with communicating their message out to the world. And that's, those are my big missions at the moment. And I'm enjoying them a great deal. Lovely. And actually, I've had a few guests on. And of all the people in the world that they mentioned, that's been the biggest inspiration. Your name is coming up. It's uh, Amber Kedevi, uh, Rusty's been on, Joanna Mercedes has been and every single time. Uh, Gotham as well has been on. Your name is just top of the list. They've said you've made them jump, you know, to, from one extreme to the next to be so good on stage. You know, it's, it warms my heart to hear that. And I, I, I can only explain it a little bit like getting on stage was the hardest thing in the world for me. I was so terrified that I had to figure it out. And because I had to figure it out, I think it's given me a perspective on helping other people figure it out. Yeah, no. and it's, you know, because like I've even seen when, when I've been to the event, how you can transform a person because there's been people that have been standing there just terrified and you've actually, you've got them that they've been able to be, without even realizing what you were doing, to be able to speak on stage. And, you know, so like, how can people get to that? Because I mean, not everybody can actually go to say an event or whatever, but like, what's your kind of tips that you could help someone that's really scared? You know, um, obviously the fast way, the fast way is when I have a chance to work with somebody, bring them up on stage and help them rewire. And you've seen it. Like I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that. Not everybody obviously can make that happen. And so then we can break it down like basically how I did it. There's a couple of keys. The one is that the more passionate you are about your mission, the more passionate you are about your topic, uh, the easier it starts getting to open your mouth in front of a room. I'll give you a crazy example. If you and I are out for dinner and say we're out for dinner with somebody who's terrified of public speaking, a little bit shy maybe even, 
and they start, they, they see like water coming under the bathroom door into the restaurant and they see water, they're, they're, they're going to kind of like, um, there's water, there's, there's water under the door. You know, like it, it, the waiter, they're not going to call the waiter over. They're going to be like, but on the other hand, if they saw smoke coming under the door, if they saw flames licking under the door, they're not going to be afraid of public speaking. Fire, fire, get out. So the more passionate you are, the easier it is to get your message out. Because in a sense, what happens is your fear of rejection goes down. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it would be very selfish to spot the fire and leave the restaurant and not tell anybody. That would be incredibly selfish. It would be wrong. And so the same thing starts happening when somebody gets really in touch with their mission. In my case, I unlocked some things about nutritional anthropology and food psychology. And I was like, oh my God, I can have an impact here. And so suddenly I realized if I let my fear hold me back because I'm afraid of you know, rejection or whatever it is that's terrifying me about going on stage, then how selfish is that when I know I could be helping people save lives, right? So suddenly the passion can actually overcome a lot of the fear. That's one big clue. And then the other two are physiological. Um, two others, I should say, are physiological. The one is breathing is we have, um, as omnivores, we have two types of breathing. We have prey breathing and we have predator breathing. Prey breathing is where you breathe really shallow because you're afraid you're being hunted. So you breathe really shallow up in the top of your chest and that makes you raise your cortisol and adrenaline levels. So you become fearful and as you become fearful, you become more pessimistic and as you become more pessimistic you have less empathy and so the whole thing turns into this cycle which makes it really difficult to get overcome the fear predator breathing and i don't mean that somebody's intentionally hunting but i just mean the confidence of a predator lying out in the sun not afraid of anything breathes deeply and so when we breathe deeply we communicate to ourselves that we are safe we communicate to ourselves that we're not afraid of anything we're not fearing anyone and so all of a sudden it changes our entire brain chemistry and our body chemistry. Another physiological one is the way we use our eyes. The same thing. When we are in fear mode, our eyes are like darting around and staring at stuff. And so it makes us very like, <gasps> but when you were, if you were sitting in nature and there's no threats or opportunities to think about, you wouldn't be staring at anything. You'd be gazing at the wonder of the nature around you. You'd be gazing at it. So when our eyes are softly focused, our body feels safe because obviously we would never like, Roy, can you imagine we're walking along in the bush and we see in Africa and you softly, I say we're in Africa when you see a lion and you softly gaze at it. <laughs> no, you're going to be staring at it. How big is it? Is it awake? Like, so the minute you stare at something, you tell your body to prepare for a threat or an opportunity, which means create some adrenaline. So those are major keys. And then there's one last one. And this is something we, we teach at Speaker Nation, which is that nervousness and fear are ultimately the same emotion physiologically. Like anger looks very different from depression, which is even different from sadness, which is different from jealousy, which is different from depression. You know, all, like they all look different in your body, but weirdly nervousness and excitement basically look the same. They create the same physiological conditions in the body. I would argue that they are in fact the same emotion with one difference and that is mental focus. So somebody who is nervous but has a really excited, like a really positive outcome, they're not nervous at all, they're excited. But somebody who's excited, who's looking at the outcome like it's bad, they're gonna be nervous. That's the only difference. So 
what do so many people do before they walk on stage? They imagine it going badly. They worry they're going to forget what they were going to say. They think the audience won't laugh. And they, they imagine all the scary stuff, so they take their excitement and turn it into nervousness. If we can undo those things, people can walk on stage and feel great. No, oh, that's brilliant. And like, as you were saying that, it, like thoughts are going through my head because when I, I used to work for a mechanical contractor and do big jobs, like 10 million plus. And when I used to have to sit around the table with 20 people, the, you know, the client, I was like, Mr. Bean, my voice. But if the builder was actually attacking our line, I was a different, I was like Mr. Confident and just, you know, it was like the, the shame disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I would go to meetings and I would be very quiet and whatever. But if there was any attack going on, suddenly I was like, no, 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 hang on a second. We got to talk about this. And, you know, and then I was able to find my voice. So I think that if we can tap into that with everything, like for example, in my case, my mission to turn the health of people around all over, like I, I want to transform a billion people's lives, like change the way they feel about food, change their psychology. Well, when you have that big, strong a commitment, you don't have time to be afraid. You don't have time to be freaking out. You just got to get it done. Exactly. And I mean, the fact that you became such a competent speaker, your business can get to the billion people because you can get the message across. Yeah, I mean, I'm really clear. Speaking is one of the most powerful forms of influence on earth. And it, 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 and it has been for hundreds of thousands of years and it will be for more. And, and that's because, frankly, for hundreds of thousands of years, we sat around the fire and listened to stories. And so our brains are basically computers that enjoy stories. And it's the best way to put information into the brain is through a story because with no emotion, there's no memory. You know, emotion is the glue that causes information to stick in your memory. It's just how it is. So, so, so now people really like that experience. So when you become comfortable and confident, you suddenly have an upgrade in your level of influence that the average person just doesn't have. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. I mean, this is a speaking podcast, but I've been blown away to watch like professional speakers that put audiences to sleep. You know, I, I've seen TED Talks. And I love TED. I think TED's a great platform. I've just seen a few TED Talks. So I'm like, whoa, how did that person get booked? Like, you know, in fact, I saw this one woman doing this. It was a TEDx talk. And she was doing this talk on the five keys to public speaking. But Roy, she didn't use any of them. So she lectured about the five keys of public speaking, but she didn't use any of them. So it was like this. It's really important when you're public speaking to remember to use a full vocal range. If you vary your voice up and down, then you will find your content becomes more engaging for the audience. Also, it's important to show emotion on your face because that way they have a sense of where you're going. Your words are only part of the message and your physiology is the, oh my God. Yes, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, like it's, it's interesting because uh, like uh, I'm involved with the Toastmasters as well and I see the difference because like that, I have seen people that get to the top level, the DTM, and they can be like that. And with the TEDx, because I know sometimes it's the competent Toastmasters, as they call it, that's teaching the person on stage, but they're just applying the way they do it. And sometimes it's kind of, it's not from the heart. I know that the way you, you know, you create the speech and everything, it's never, never memorized. And that is such a critical thing, in my opinion, if you want to really reach uh, the masses. Yeah. Listen, Roy, I'm a huge fan of Toastmasters. I went to Toastmasters actually in Ireland. I went to Toastmasters in, uh, in Chicago and, you know, when I first started speaking. But I think we have to remember what Toastmasters is. It's an amateur speaking club. 
And you know, that's what it is. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's, it's going to help you get really good at giving a toast at a wedding or, uh, or, you know, do a presentation at work or something like that. But I don't think that it's really designed to help somebody go out and become a truly influential, passionate public speaker, politician. You know, it, it just, it is, now I'm not, there are people who manage to do that in it, but I, I would say that one of the reasons they manage to do that is they break the rules. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's what happened in my case is I went to Toastmasters and the very first speech I did, it was so funny. I did this speech. And I can't remember, it's been a long time, right? But I know there's this thing where the audience is voting on the like best speech of the night, right? But the judges are getting their feedback together. And I did my talk and the judges like ripped me apart. Like they were like, wow, you have a lot of work. We're glad you're here. You have potential, but you're this and you're that and you got to stop doing this and you got to stop doing that. But then I won the popular vote and man, was my brain confused. Like I got all this negative feedback, but I still won the popular vote. And that's the day I realized I didn't want to learn formulaic speaking. I didn't want to become like any other speaker. I just wanted to be me. And so the rules didn't really matter to me. What mattered to me was that I was connecting with the audience. Yeah, no, brilliant. No, that has actually happened to me in competitions. Didn't win the prize, but got the public vote. And, you know, and it's kind of, I prefer doing it that way because I've actually, one of my previous guests, and it was, uh, he won f- like five different competitions and it's incredible what he's done. But, he has practiced each of the different things over a hundred times. Whereas yeah. I had got into the final last year of a district of five countries. I practiced twice beforehand, you know, and like, I don't have the time, you know, I'm like, you're a serial entrepreneur and kind of the same. And a lot of people, a lot of the listeners, you don't have time to be practicing a hundred, 200 times. No, no. But the other thing is, and, and this is one of the issues that I have with some like speaking clubs, including Toastmasters that sometimes they're more interested in it looking perfect than they are in it looking authentic. So, you know, it's like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and fellow Toastmasters. Today, I'm going to give you an incredible you know, a presentation where I will use my vocal range to some degree, but I will also speak in complete sentences. I will make sure that I look to the left and that I also look to the right. You know, it's like, that's great. That's, I mean, for most people, that's like a 10 times better than they were ever doing before, but at the end of the day, when you can go to a conference and, and you can see where they learn to speak, that's a problem. You should never be able to, you should see somebody say, you go, I have no idea where they learned that because yeah. it's just them. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And uh, one of the things is there's three different types of audience and there's something that I've heard from you, kinetic, is it? The auditory. Kinesthetic, touch and feeling. Yeah. So you might just uh, explain a, a bit of that. To the- sure. So that actually comes from various branches of psychology and often spoke a lot about in, uh, in neuro-linguistic programming and LP. The idea really is, is that you can, su- to some degree, you can look at the, the, the population or at any given audience and you can assume that some of the people in the audience are going to be naturally quieter and slower. They, they take more time with their words. They don't tend to put so much volume in. They leave long pauses and that's because often they're taking their words and they're channeling the words through their feelings they're 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 seeing how their gut feels about it before they say it and so they like to hear content that way as well and then you have other people that are more like sound based and they quite like a regular cadence they like a talk that has a predictive rhythm and so that when you have that like hey um Good evening, ladies and gentlemen and fellow Toastmasters. I'm going to give you a presentation today that's going to basically sound 
up and down like this for the next 15 minutes. They kind of like that to some degree. And then there are other people that are more visual and they, they think in pictures and a picture's worth a thousand words. So they prefer the sound to come at them a little louder and a bit faster. And the trouble is, is that if you speak in only one of those methods, then you lose 66% of the audience. And speakers do this all the time. And then they think, well, I'll just stay in the middle where it's safe. It's not safe there. You lose the top and the bottom, you lose them. And so a, a really good talk, if you really think about the talks that get good views on YouTube, if you look at the, a really good talk, it uses a really wide vocal range. There are times in the talk where you drop down and really get into the feeling of it. And then you get really excited about it. And that roller coaster of emotional experience is part of what makes the whole process engaging. Oh, brilliant. And uh, what the audience won't know is that you speak with uh, Tony Robbins and I believe come on after him. So that shows the caliber that you are to actually not only be, you know, speaking with Tony Robbins, but to come after somebody like that. So, I mean, to me, like you, you are the best speaker that I have ever seen. And like, uh, Roy, I appreciate it. You know, I, I, Tony's been a major influence on me since I was 18 years old. You and I are, uh, you and I remember what tapes were. <laughs> you know, I was listening to Tony Robbins on cassette tapes in my car and uh, in my in my work car. And, um, you know, he, he really had an influence on me from a young age. But what an honor it was to have his company call me and ask me to come and teach business and marketing at his events. And the funny thing is, is that the very first event I did with him, it was actually only him and me. So there was no choice about following him. Like it was like, it's only you and Tony. So you're going to follow Tony. But I took it as an incredible honor when they A, booked me for another year to come and teach all the time, but then also that every single time I was at an event, they always made me take the spot after Tony. And that's, he's so dynamic and he's so powerful that it's really hard to find somebody who can jump into that energy and still hold the audience. Because of course, many times, you know, like Tony leaves the stage, next speaker comes on, and that's when everybody wants to go to the bathroom. So it's really like, it was really an honor that they gave me that. And I will tell you, it wasn't natural. It didn't come easily to me. In fact, I had a very good uh, a bit of advice, funny enough, from a frenemy. You know what I mean by a frenemy? Like a guy who was a bit competitive with me about being on stage with Tony and all that kind of stuff. He also did those events. But he called me one day in a, just really beautiful advice. He goes, Eric, the truth is, I, have a hard, I don't like saying it, but I feel like you're one of the best I've seen in a long time. But I can tell you right now, if you go on stage after Tony, the way you normally go on stage, it will not work. It works everywhere else, this, this starting softly and moving in. It works everywhere, but you cannot do that following Tony. He said this to me, and I really thought about what he was saying. And at my first event where I had to go on after Tony, I really like put it to practice. And that advice saved me because I, don't, I think if I hadn't had that advice, I might have tried to use my normal pattern and that wouldn't have worked following Tony. And that's one of the lessons I've now had is that it is unbelievably important to be in the room for the speakers that are on the stage before you. And I'm amazed at the number of times I see speakers out of ignorance or arrogance that aren't in the room or they're in the room, but they're so nervous and messed up about their own talk that they're not hearing the speaker that's on the stage. I am always listening to the speaker that's on the stage before me for many reasons. The one is I don't wanna be that idiot who says, I've seen this happen so many times, speaker A says something pretty profound. Speaker B walks in, wasn't listening, says the same profound thing and acts like he just channeled it from God. Like, I'm gonna say something so, pro they just said it 10 minutes ago. 
If you were in the room, you'd know that. And so I think it's really important to be in the room to check for things like that, but also to check the energy of the room, to understand that the speaker is going to set a temperature. And if you don't start at that temperature, you're going to break rapport. Some years ago, I was at an event and Michael Beckwith was speaking. And, and um, geez, I wonder if that was that same Live Your Quest. Was Michael Beckwith speaking at that Mexican Live Your Quest right. A-Fest? Yeah, it was that event. And suddenly they call, they go, hey, could you, would you mind doing a, you know, a, a talk? And I wasn't booked to speak. I was sure. But then they put me on after Reverend Michael Beckwith. Now, the old me would have been scared. I am no longer afraid. I love following the best because it brings out the best in me. I have followed President Bill Clinton. I've followed Tony Robbins. I've followed John Gray. I've followed some of the greatest speakers I've ever seen. So, so I'm not afraid. But then Michael Beckwith, I'm like, okay, maybe I am a little because he's got that way of him. He's got that, that, that activation that he does where you, he just taps in and it's like, I want to talk to you about your complete potentiality when you begin to realize that the words are simply coming through you and delivering the exact right message at the exact moment and recognizing that every single decision you make is driving your destiny. Like, I don't know how he can do that for an hour. It's, it's powerful. But because I was in the room, I understood the energy. And when I walked onto the stage, I was able to tap into that energy and I did a talk that was one of my favorites in terms of how it felt in my body. And so I really think it's important that we tap into the energy, that we understand who was in the room before, that we hear the messages that they had and recognize that they have set the vibration of the room. And if you go in there and, and try, and, and you're not in that vibration, you have an uphill battle. No, I totally agree with that. And I've actually seen you there. I've seen you, you know, you're sitting down, you know, on a beanbag watching. And then the, the beauty of that actually is you can actually make a comment so people know that your speech isn't rehearsed. So when you can incorporate something they've said, it really, people can resonate with it and they're going, wow, they're impressed. And it, it connects you better, I believe, with the, with the audience. Not only that, I mean, selfishly, the other speaker is gonna make a joke at some point. They're gonna say something funny, you know, mostly. And so now you can do what in comedy they call a callback. So, you know, the speaker says something quite funny and then you can use that joke to get extra emotion out of the audience which is great for value, but it also, like you just said, it reminds the audience that you are a member of the audience. It, it connects you with them. Oh my God, he was in the room for that. Like they feel like you're there with them. Because Roy, one thing I'm really clear about, when I stand up in front of an audience, I am not more special than anybody in that audience. I am not smarter than anybody in that audience. I don't think of it that way. It's like, here's how it is. Every single person in the audience has life experience that is valuable to me if they were the ones on the stage. Every single person in that audience is smarter than me about something. And so what that means is, is that when I'm on the stage, I'm connecting with a bunch of peers. They may not have some of the skills I have to speak. Or maybe they do, I don't know. But their life experience is absolutely gonna be valuable to me if I had a chance to hear it. And I think that really grounds me too before I walk on the stage. I don't, I never, I'm not into this whole sage on the stage thing where I'm the one with the wisdom in the room. That just doesn't, that's, I just don't like that energy uh, you're at all. Very I mean, you're very approachable. Like I've come across stage where people think they're on a pedestal, but like you're, you, you interact with people, sit down, have lunch with them and everything. And, and what we were just talking about there with like saying following Tony, it, it also works on the opposite side of the spectrum. So if you've got the jolly guy, you can't come in with your energy kind of thing. You'll have to kind of start off slow and build up to, you know, yeah. otherwise you probably scare the audience. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, you know, I think that um, 
I think, to be fair, I think Tony has um, lost, and it, it, for him it was probably a good decision, but he has lost one third of the audience permanently. The, the deeply kinesthetic people are very unlikely to survive one of his workshops, in my opinion. Like, they, they, they just, it's just too much. And he gets it. I'm sure he has no problem with that. Like, if those people need him, they'll find him. He's okay with that. He's doing okay, right? But my, my approach is a little bit different than that. I, I really aim for what we call broad spectrum delivery. Um, at Speaker Nation, we talk about this concept of broad spectrum delivery. And that means that you have to look at the uh, learning uh, styles and the communication styles of the audience and try to uh, put your message together in a way where even if they're not interested in the topic, they're interested in the presentation. And so, for example, because I often am speaking about health and food psychology and all that kind of stuff, I, I, I'm very often invited to speak at conferences about that topic when the conference isn't that topic. So, for example, some years ago, I was asked to speak at this large conference in Germany. I say large. It was about 1,000 people in the audience. So, you know, medium-sized. And so, I go in to do the talk. But it's a business conference. They're learning entrepreneurship, marketing, all stuff that I can speak about. But that's not what I've been contracted for. They want me to come and talk about health. So I walk in there. Nobody is there to learn about health. Not one of them is there to learn about health. They are all there to learn how to double their business. They're learning internet marketing. They're learning you know, branding. They're not there to learn about health. But that doesn't mean that I just want to do my talk for the 10% of them that might be interested in health. I want to do my talk for all of them and so that means that if the content doesn't have resonance with the audience, the delivery had better. And so from my perspective, that means really using the visual auditory kinesthetic communication patterns. It means going through the learning styles properly so that people, under, you know, people get the information they want the way they want it. And it means telling compelling stories because stories are told well are exactly what puts people into this like beautiful learning state where you really can help the information integrate for them, where they can get the information and keep it. Yeah. Oh, and one thing as well that I've seen with you, like you kind of take the time on stage, you use it and you don't exceed it. I, I have seen a situation where one event, you actually went up on stage, put your arm around and tried to take the person off. Like, I don't think people realize that you have to be really respect the time that you're given and not to exceed it because you're, you know, so I'll make a deal. I want to share something with you about when that happened, as long as we are not naming the speaker that it happened to. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. So it, 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 that, the, the particular speaker is a very good friend of mine, and he is one of the best, in my opinion, one of the most entertaining, gregarious, amazing speakers in the world, and he's, and he's been one of the most important people in my entire life. So when I showed up at that event, one of the things I know about him is that he very often goes over time, and, he, and it's just because he's so generous. It's just because he wants to perform, and he wants to give, and he wants to... And so on that particular circumstance, he, um, he just lost track of the energy. He lost what was going on and he ended up going over time. And what, what I want everybody to hear, anybody who's speaking, you never go over time. The audience is not your client. The producer is your client. So you think you're over delivering for your client, which is the audience. But since the audience is not your client, you're not over delivering, you are causing problems. And so exactly what was going on in this place is, this speaker was going over time and the next speaker was being affected by it and every other speaker that day was being affected by it and the whole schedule is being affected by it and the production team is being affected by it. Like it's a major problem. 
And so the, the, the event manager came up to me and said, look, can you, can you do something? Can you go get him off the stage? No, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm not doing that. Not ever. No. And, and the MC tried to get him off and it wasn't working. Like it was just kind of all turning into this game. And in the end, a very senior manager of the company asked me if I would do it. And, and I did it. And I walked up and I did it in the best friendly possible way that I could. But I had to have a very serious heart to heart with this friend of mine and say, listen, here's the impact of this when it happens. Here is the impact of it. And I want everybody watching, everybody listening to, listen, to hear me. Your generosity is wonderful. Your desire to give is amazing. If you go over, you might think that it's selfless. You might think that it's generous, but it's not. It's selfish. And it really makes it difficult for every other person involved in the event. And here's the thing you really need to hear. Even though there are some people in the audience that are enjoying what you're doing and they're enjoying your jokes or your stories or whatever it is, there's a percentage of the audience that knows that you're over time and they start feeling incredibly uncomfortable in their seats because they know you're over time. So it's very important that when you are given a time slot that you respect that time slot and you end on time. And by the way, you also don't end early. That is catastrophically bad as well. I was at an event in Tallinn, Estonia. There were something like 3,000 people, maybe 2,500 people in the audience in a big stadium. And the woman that was going on before me ended 45 minutes early, I think. Now, can you imagine? There's a schedule. There's a plan. Now, luckily for them, I am mega flexible. So they go, can you go now? Yeah. But do you know, Roy, I know you do, how many speakers are still working on their talk right up to the minute they go on? So if you ask them to go on 45 minutes early, like, I can't, I'm not ready. So... I think A, don't go late, B, don't end early, and C, be ready for anything because you wanna be the speaker that when the shit hits the fan and things get difficult, they go, hey, call Roy, he can handle anything. And then you get booked and you get booked and you get booked. Yeah. And like, cause you have kind of um, a strategy for if you have a story and you, you have five minutes on the stage or 30 minutes, you might give some people some tips on that kind of, Sure. I have a really great way of thinking about this. Like, you know, uh, when I was living in Cork, Mark Knopfler came and he played at, um, I can't, like, it's basically where the mayor is. It's like, I don't know, it was some like government building, private city conference hall. room. Probably and City Hall in the center, yeah? Maybe it was City Hall. You know what? It must have been City Hall. And it was really cool because like all in one week, that movie, um, gosh, what was that movie with Liam Neeson and... Um, it was about the Irish guy in, 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 in the Troubles, and I, I can't remember, but um, there was this... Uh, Michael Collins. Michael Collins. Michael, Michael Collins, that's right. And that movie came out, and because we were like there starting a business, and the, the mayor invited us to come to the premiere, and we got to meet Liam, and we got to meet... It was so fun. And then about, a couple of weeks later, they're like, hey, you want to come back? We've got Mark Knopfler coming and doing a private concert. Like, here. So here's the thing. We got Mark Knopfler doing a private concert. Mark. Can you perform for 35 minutes? What does he say? Yes. Does he need to practice? No, he doesn't need to practice. He just goes and gets 35 minutes worth of songs and, and then he comes and, he, and that's it. He doesn't, need to, he doesn't need to memorize anything. The only thing he has to memorize is the order of the songs he was gonna play. And even that's not that big a deal because he can change it. So what we wanna do as speakers is think like that. And so I have an inventory of stories. They are my songs. I'm a, I'm, I'm a singer, ultimately. And so I'm just, I just have this inventory of stories. So if you ask me to come and speak, and this happened to me, you've probably heard the story before I, I, if, you've, if you've seen me speak on speaking. 
But I was invited to speak in Manchester in, in the UK. I got there. I was supposed to speak for 45 minutes. The woman comes up and she goes, I need to cut 15 minutes off your time. Roy, how does the average speaker react when that happens, <laughs> right? It's what do you mean? Temper tantrum and complaining and prima donna. And I just said to her, no problem. And she was shocked. She was really surprised. So then I'm, I'm, I'm cutting a few slides out of my presentation and long and the short of it is when it's my turn to go up on stage, I go on stage for my now 30 minute presentation. And when I got five minutes left, I see the five minute sign. And here's really something so important. Never acknowledge the time warnings. Like your job as the speaker is to cast a spell for your hour or your half hour and keep everybody in the bubble. And the minute you go, oh, well, oh I have five minutes left. Oh, or, or like, no. And so I got the five minute warning. I didn't say anything. I just carried on. I carried on. And I was just getting into the last minute and they showed me a new five minute warning. And I was like, did they think I didn't see it? And then I could tell from the look on the guy's face who was holding the sign, he needed another five minutes. Something was going wrong backstage, technical problem. I don't know, but they need an extra five minutes. So what do I do? I grab another song. I grab another song. And by the way, you know this, if, 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 uh, if, um, if the Rolling Stones want to play Satisfaction, they can play it in five minutes, they can play it in 12 minutes. You, you, can, you, know, you can stretch a song out if you want. You can do the same with a story. So that means they want me to do an extra five minutes. I grab some story that I know is a three to five minute story. I go running in and then they show me another five minute sign. Then they showed me a 15 minute sign. Then they showed me a 30 minute sign. I ended up being on stage for 90 minutes when I was only supposed to be 30 minutes. But here's the magic of it. The audience never knew anything was wrong. Never once did I go, oh, what? You got, you need another. Oh, you've got problems backstage? Cause you're inept at running an event. I mean like that, that's what, it, no, my job is to make the producer look good. So as far as the audience was concerned, I was always supposed to be 90 minutes. They, for them, there was no difference. And I think that's a really key skill to develop as a speaker. Yes, no, definitely. So I know that you uh, have like kind of five day events because to be honest with you, I, I think you're, you're dead right with, you know, we, we mentioned the Toastmasters and it gets you to the kind of, where you can speak, but it doesn't get you to the level, you know, anywhere close to being, you know, authentic on stage and really good. You have a system that you can do it in five, five days. And I, I, I believe in Toastmasters, it takes between six months to a year. And that's if you're really embracing taking roles and everything. And you're not even at the same level because I have seen, I've lots of competitions that you have organized at the end of the events. And I know a lot of the people and prior to it, you know, they were like, oh God, I don't know what to do. And they said it was the best experience of their life. So you might just kind of, uh, you know, let us know what, what kind of entails and how they can, you know, get, get involved in it. Sure. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, rather than, you know, I don't want to have a bit of a sales pitch here. Let me put it another way. Um, you know, when I decided to become a speaker, I knew I had an uphill battle because I was terrified and I didn't have the skills and I didn't know what I was doing. And so what did I do? Well, the first thing I did is I went to Toastmasters and I started to try to practice and, you know, get practice time. That's always going to be good, right? But then I started watching every video that I could find of truly great speakers. I started watching the videos of truly great speakers and that really helped me a lot. And then I attended about $100,000 worth of speaker trainings. I, I, I learned from, from uh, the Bill Gove method. I learned from Joel Bauer. I learned directly from Tony Robbins. 
I learned from Toastmasters. I learned from David Shepard in the United Kingdom. Like I had a number of teachers that I went and learned from. And, and what I discovered in all that is that if you want to become a pretty damn good speaker, you should study speaking. But if you want to become a phenomenally authentic, multi, like, you know, broad spectrum appeal presenter, then the work you have to do is on yourself. That's the difference. That's where it is. So what I did is I created a five-day program that everybody who comes out of it, and it sounds like some of your guests have been on it, uh, Ambika and a few others, like um, what, what they will say when they come out of it is that it was, a, it was the most powerful personal transformation program they've ever been on disguised as a speaking academy. And, and that's because the work we're doing, funny enough, is unlocking you. Now, I, I want to say this, like, look, my wife plays tennis and she plays tennis at a world-class level. I mean at world-class level, like it, she's a truly gifted and amazing tennis player. She was a world-ranked tennis player. She, 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 she knows what she's doing. Now, there is no way, Roy, that I can ever play tennis at the level she does. Sorry, that sounds like a limiting belief, but I'm 50 years old. I, I, I get that it's done. That ship has sailed. I'm not going to be a professional tennis player. Can we, I'll mourn that for a moment. Okay, I'm over it now. So I can't. But speaking is something different. You see, tennis requires, a, it's unnatural. It's a bunch of unnatural movements. So you have to learn them. You have to learn them and practice them and learn them and practice them. Speaking is entirely based on completely natural, instinctive, inherited principles. Every single person was born a naturally gifted public speaker. Everybody was. They were born that way. And, and it was only as a result of their parenting, their school, their social conditioning, that it started to get trained out of them. And so the reason that I'm able to do, I can make somebody like as good a speaker as say, Elisa is a tennis player. I can do it in five days. You could never do that with tennis. But the reason I can do it with speaking is you already have it. I, I am very much like Michelangelo, just carving out the outside to reveal what was already there. And that's why in five days, we're able to create such a huge transformation in people. And, and it's one of the most rewarding and most, um, it's one of the things I'm most grateful to be able to give to people because I know that moving from a relatively shy, not communicative, not comfortable with my words person to becoming both confident and competent at speaking has completely transformed my life. There are life experiences. Look, I was invited to speak at the Vancouver Olympics. They gave me free tickets to a bunch of the events, including the gold medal hockey game. This may not mean a lot to you because it's not hurling, but let's just say it's hockey and it's Canada, you know? And, 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 and I, I've been invited to travel all over the world. I, 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 I got to have lunch in the, in the parliamentary dining room in, 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 the, in, the, in Ottawa, Canada, where they gave me a medal for the work I'm doing around the world. None of this happens if I don't overcome, if I didn't overcome my fears of public speaking. And so it's one of the things I am most excited about giving to people. Brilliant. And just curious, actually, because I know for me, when I was in school, having to stand up and speak, and even if you had to do a presentation, and a lot of the people I talked to, I think that the actual schooling system is broken, where they kind of, they knock you that you're not confident. They, you know, make you just sit down and put your hand up to your mouth and say nothing. The school system as it is now was really designed to prepare people for the industrial age. It was designed to train people for shift work. 
Bell rings, start your class. Bell rings, move to the next class. Bell rings, take a break. Bell rings, go to the next class. Bell rings, begin your lunch break. Bell rings, stop your lunch break, go to class. I mean, that's all preparing people for working like sheep in a factory. And so the school system hasn't caught up, largely the school systems haven't caught up with the, the, the requirements of educating people today. Now let's think about it. You have a bunch of factory workers. Do you want them to be good at speaking? Absolutely not. You, you, that's the last thing you want is like, like a, a labor force that wants to speak to you. you. You just want them to go and build stuff and make it and do their job on the production line. The last thing you need is somebody who can rile up the workers and is good at speaking. So that system was not designed ever to teach people how to speak. It was designed to teach them how to sit at their desk and work. So, and then on top of that, there, there, there's a big gap that adults don't often understand. And that is that adults forget that children think differently. For example, children don't understand sarcasm. Children are quite literal. So if you make a sarcastic joke to a child, they just hear the literal words. They don't understand it. They don't understand irony. They don't understand complex thoughts like that yet. So when a teacher, like here's a classic example. Uh, if you're not paying attention in class, that's the best way to get the teacher to call on you. In fact, Roy, I'll teach you a little secret. It won't be useful to you and me, but let's pass it on to all the kids who can. Here's something I learned in school. If in September, and in Canada, that's when the school year begins. So if in September, you sit at your desk and you don't look up and you just take, you just, you just doodle, you stare out the window, but you listen to everything. You listen to everything the teacher's saying. You turn on your full active listening, but you pretend you're not. Then there's gonna come a point in the first week of September where she's gonna go, uh, Eric, when was the war of 1812? And you're gonna go, 1812, you were listening. And, and the thing is, she's gonna be so shocked or he's gonna be so shocked because they were certain you weren't paying attention. You only have to do that to the teacher two or three times and they never call on you again. You're safe to daydream for the rest of the year. But in the meantime, if you don't know that little trick, then they are gonna call on you to catch you out. And what they're trying to do is teach you a complex lesson. And that lesson is pay attention in my class. If you don't, there's consequences. I will embarrass you. The trouble is, is that's too complex a thought for an eight-year-old. And all the eight-year-old experiences is being forced to stand up and not knowing the answer in front of one of the most unkind audiences in the world. Because let's face it, children are not very nice. I mean, not, not you and my kids, right? But the other kids, right? They're not a nice audience. And so that child is then asked to answer a question that they don't know the, 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 the answer to. And the teacher knew they didn't know the answer to it, makes them stand up. Now they're trying to muddle and no wonder they end up terrified of public speaking. Now, I am not accusing any teacher of doing this on purpose. They weren't taught this idea. The number of times I've spoken for teachers and I've shared this with them and they're like, they suddenly felt guilty for every kid they felt they'd broken over the last and they would never do it again. So it's not that teachers are doing this because they're mean, it's because nobody taught them this. And that, that is only one of the ways that our, our fear of public speaking gets created. Another one is powerful, domineering, generally fathers, but mothers can do it too. But in my experience, working with hundreds, thousands of people over the last whatever years, it's generally the father. And it's the father doing stuff like, uh, you know, uh, children should be seen and not heard. Think before you speak. Indoor voice. Shh, I'm watching the game right now. You know, that kind of thing. And so w children are being taught early on. That, that, that speaking is dangerous. And so we, with our kids, I think it's really important that we teach our kids that it's absolutely okay to be heard. It, it, it's absolutely expected they will order their own food when you're in a restaurant, that they make eye contact with the waiter, that they become comfortable with being a human being.
No, exactly. And like, I, I have one daughter, she's 20, but I remember when she was growing up, what I used to do is if she wanted in the shop, I would say, if you want it, you get it and get her comfortable buying stuff in the shop. With my son now, yeah. he's six. What I'm doing is I'm getting him into magic. And it's basically that he's performing. He doesn't realize what a gift he's going to have, but he's able to perform magic in front of people, which in turn means he's a good public speaker. And he will yeah. not have fair when he's standing in front of 100 people because he's so used to it. Yeah. You spread those kids out quite a bit. Hey, 20 and six. I still, I still got you beat. Mine are 22 and three. <laughs> and like, uh, with your kids, have you, is there anything that you would have done to help them in the speaking, you know, with your skill set? You know, um, my son and I have a, um, and he, he and I are very different people. Um, he kind of, you know, you can see the resemblance, but beyond that, we, we think differently and we're politically different and what have you. And so one of, the, one of the policies I've had is to be willing to debate the stuff he wants to debate. So, you know, he and I had incredible debates about Brexit and we have incredible debates about equality. And, and one of my beliefs is that you really have no business being in a debate unless you can argue both sides. If you can't argue both sides, stay out of it. You don't know what you're talking about, in my opinion. Yeah. So I, one of the things that I've done with him is I've even argued like the other side of stuff with him even though it wasn't what I believed. And, um, and you know, so for, <laughs> here's the sad problem. When he and I first started debating about Brexit, he was a Remain and I, so I had to take the other side. And I, I was not for a Brexit. But then I changed his mind and he has a British passport and he voted for Brexit. <laughs> so my little plan backfired. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. So uh, listen, it's been fantastic. I know you've got other appointments and everything. So like, I just want to quick to talk about the wild fit because uh, I know a lot of people have done that as well. So you might, because it's, it, for me, I have studied a lot of things in life and I know one of the books that I have read, uh, The Wheel of Fortune, the people that lived the longest were in the Himalayas, they were living to over 100 and it was down to food. There was no medicine, no injections or nothing. And I think, you know, just the, the psychology and just knowing to eat the proper food. And that's something that you're actually spreading. So you might just uh, give us a bit on that. You know, I went through a major health recovery of my own in my early 20s. And one of the things that it highlighted for me is that I'd been seeing doctors for, I don't know, years and years and years to try to deal with a bunch of problems I was having. And, um, and then one day I changed my diet and all the problems went away. And I was really confused. Like, why is it that I went to see all these doctors and specialists and they prescribed all these things and none of them helped. And yet all I had to do was eat more of this and eat less of that. And every, I lost 35 pounds, 15 kilos or so. I, I, all my symptoms went away, all the pain went away. And so one day I asked one of my doctors, like, do you guys study food? Like, yeah, you know, in all the years you go to medical school, do you study food? And they, no, they don't. The only way a doctor studies food is if they happen to be curious enough about it to take an elective course. And that is in every, I've now, I've now asked that question in over 25 countries around the world. And with one exception, and that is Albania, a woman, a doctor in Albania told me that she was, that they had six months of nutritional training was part of her medical degree. That's the only country I've ever heard of that before. Every other country, doctors don't study medicine. Well, I think about it like this, like, would you take your car to a mechanic that doesn't understand gas, oil, antifreeze, uh, auto brake fluid, you know, bra braking fluid, auto, auto, automatic transmission fluid? Like, no, no way. You would want them to understand those things. And so what happened in my case is I recognized if doctors weren't going to study that, somebody would have to. And so I started looking into nutritionists and dietitians. And you know what? They don't really study food either. What they study is government-sponsored regulations that are bought and paid for by the food industry. 
And I, it's not their fault. I don't blame them. It's just the way it kind of works out. And so I undertook a massive research project that involved reading a lot, you know, going through studies, uh, going and staying with, the, with, with nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa to really try and understand our evolutionary history better. And, um, and then I then turned my attention to what we call behavioral change dynamics, which is the underpinning of all of my courses. It's, it's a system we use for designing courses to make them engaging, integrative, and transformative. And so I started designing a way of integrating the nutritional information I'd found into people's lives. This is very different than educating. Educating is like, I don't know how to put it. It's like, it's like putting a lick of paint on the building. Integrating is let's go change the foundation. Let's go change how the building's built. And, and that's how WildFit was born. I, I, I took eight clients through the program uh, six years ago. And all eight of them went through fairly significant transformation. And then I went through another eight and another eight. And the next thing you know, word of mouth started spreading. And, and then WildFit just took off on me. Like it just, it just exploded around the world. And we've done very little marketing. We've done very little of any of that. It's all been as a result of other people. Even now, Mindvalley is our publisher. But that's only because the founder, Vision, did the program and shared pictures of his before after across the internet and, mm-hmm. and, and started marketing himself because he was such a fan. And so WildFit is the thing that I'm probably, you know, in terms of my professional life, the thing that I am most proud of. Um, We, every single day, receive letters from people saying that they've reversed their type 2 diabetes, they've lost 20, 30, 40 pounds, their inflammation is gone, they're in cancer remission, their fertility is back, their libido is back, their memory is back. I, there is nothing that you can do for people, there's nothing more powerful that you can do for a person to improve their quality of life then get their nutrition, hydration, and oxygenation right. If you can get all that stuff right, then everything they want to achieve in life gets easier. Their, their moods are easier to manage. Their mind is, their, their memory works better. Everything is better when your nutrition, your air, your water, and your movement is right. Life gets easier. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I remember because they the the book that I read, they were talking about uh, that they gave uh, rats because rats have similar organs. And they gave them the same food that these people live into a hundred. And there was no you know, sinus problem, no nothing. And then they gave them the poor man's food and they had tumors, they had cancers, they had all, every single problem. And they gave them uh, food from uh, the UK. And after 16 days, they became cannibalistic. And yeah. from kind of that moment, I've realized how important nutrition is in everything we do, you know, the psychology and the whole office. So yeah, I would, I would put to you that, um, the vast majority of the suffering, illness, depression, and strain on the medical system is because of a disastrous food production, manufacturing, and marketing system, which is using their quest for profits to drive unethical marketing and lobbying practices, which means that even what the governments are telling us isn't accurate, and we're in trouble. You know, our healthcare systems are not straining because, uh, you know, because people are naturally so sick all the time. Our healthcare systems are straining because people are living deplorable choices and it's not their fault. Like, Roy, one thing I want to say, it might sound like I'm blaming people because they're eating bad stuff or whatever. Nope. I don't even like the expression lifestyle disease. I don't think we should call it a lifestyle disease. We should call it a society disease because it's society that caused the disease. It is, it's, 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 it's a terrible food regulation system, a food legislation system, a food manufacturing system, and a food education system. And it's so broken that we are seeing prolific levels. I mean, Roy, I'm going to say this. I've said it a few times now. It's a little controversial. But I would put to you that if COVID-19 escaped from whatever lab or cave or bat, well, I don't care where it came from, but if it came out into the population in the 1960s, 
you wouldn't even have known about it. You wouldn't have known about it because there wasn't enough diabetes, obesity, hypertension. There, there wasn't enough, any of that stuff for it to take root in the population and become a pandemic. It only has been as dangerous as it is because our population is so weak and sick to begin with because of a disastrous food manufacturing system. No, exactly. And like what I, I find strange as well, because it, it's something and it, it's gone back to actually how you inspired me at the start because the, that, that meeting that I went was what's your quest. And for me, it was like, what am I doing in life? And I have written a book, but I'm not released. It wasn't ready for, I'm exposing all that stuff, but I'm given solutions. And it's only no, I'm ready to give it because the population wasn't ready. I would be attacked from every direction. But I have seen that people now are awake and they can actually see how we can change. And that the corruption, like you said, all the politicians, they've been bribed. They're telling people this is okay when it's not like a spartum and stuff like that. But what I find strange is when you tell somebody, they just go, yeah, and they keep eating the chungum with the spartum. You know, so it shouldn't be allowed on the shelves. And we need, you know, society to change totally. So what you're yeah. doing, I love it. Because somebody, I, I always say, uh, with public speaking, if you can make a change in life and you're using your skill to actually help people, you know, to live a better life. You know, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I feel like when we, um, when we hold back our brilliance, when we hold back our life experience, when we hold back the magic that we could be sharing, we're selfish. Yeah. And I think that the lockdown, the COVID lockdown has taught us a lot about that. All of a sudden, people with you know, homeschooling experience, people with gardening experience, people with cooking experience, people with, you know, all of a sudden people began to realize that their experience and that their um, information and, 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 and their strategies might be valuable to other people. And I think people are beginning to wake up to that a lot. And so I'm here to help them figure out how to become really confident and competent in getting that message out to the world. Oh, brilliant. So how can people get in uh, contact with Eric? Well, I think if they're interested in speaking, the best place to go is speakernation.com, speakernation.com. If they're interested in wildfit, that's super easy. They just go to uh, wild.fit, wild.fit. And um, hey, if they want to talk with me, come, come find me on Instagram. I manage my own Instagram. The rest of my social is somewhat managed, but I hold on to my Instagram. And, and, and so if you send me a message, you're likely to hear back from me personally. And please come and, uh, come and say hello. And, uh, and um, that's a great way to connect. Okay, brilliant. And I, what I'll do on the podcast links, I'll give all the links to what you just said there. So listen, it's Super. been fantastic. Something I was looking forward for a long time. So thank you very much, Roy, thanks for having me. Keep doing the good work. And uh, I, I, really, I, I, I really have enjoyed the conversation. You're a great interviewer. Thanks so much. Thank you. So that's all for today for uh, uh, Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. Until next week, take care. So I hope you enjoyed that uh, podcast interview with uh, Eric as much as I did. You can find all the episodes, which are totally different, on speakingpodcast.com. And we've also got the Meditation Podcast and the Learn Polish Podcast, along with Polish Property, which can all be found on RoyCollin.com.